Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. As a high priest, he's described in Hebrews 7.26, Hebrews 7.26, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Pilate, it is judgment in John 18.38, John 18.38. He saith unto them, I find no fault in him. As the suffering servant, he's described in Isaiah 53.9, Isaiah 53.9, done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. As the Lamb of God, 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb without blemish and without spot. As the one taking our sins away, 1 John 3.5, John 3.5, he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. From the point of view, the angle of the thief on the cross, Luke 23, 41, this man hath done nothing amiss. From the point of view of the centurion, looking at him, Luke 23, 47, certainly this was a righteous man. This is the Lord Jesus, totally sinless. This is Joseph as a type of the Lord Jesus. Joseph is the type of the sinless one. That's why Joseph is so very important in the book of Genesis. Joseph is a type of the sinless Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Judah, who we're reading about here, and it's a little difficult to read, Judah is also very important in the book of Genesis. And he's contrasted with Joseph. Joseph is the pure one who resists sin. Therefore, he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah is just the opposite. Judah is the sinful one. He goes out looking for sin, and he finds it. That makes Judah a perfect type of Israel, of the Jewish people, the Messiah come from, as Isaiah described them in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Isaiah 1, 2. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. They've rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib. Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? You revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. They've not been closed, neither bound up, so forth. So, The Lord Jesus is the sinless one. He's typified by Joseph. But he came from a sinful people. as typified by Judah. Now, Judah, fortunately, is not going to remain sinful because he is going to actually lead the rest of his brothers to repentance. Coming, coming. And that's also seen 
in Isaiah's description, Isaiah's prophecy, the first chapter, in verse 18, when Isaiah says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow, red like crimson, like wool. See, the day's coming for Judah. The day's coming for the Jewish people. The restoration's coming. That's a good name, Israel Restoration. We've got to remember that. The restoration's coming of Zechariah 13.1. In that day shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So these two types of Joseph as the type of the Lord Jesus, as Judah as the type of the people that the Lord Jesus come from, they're very important for us to keep in mind as we go through the book of Genesis. Now, from what we can see about Joseph and Judah, if you were God, if you were God, and you had to choose a tribe that the Son of God is going to come into the world through, would you choose Joseph or would you choose Judah? <laughs> it's not a hard question, right? <laughs> would you choose the upright, honest, morally pure, God-trusting Joseph? Or would you choose the sadistic, selfish, lustful Judah, which one are you going to choose for the tribe that the Messiah is going to come through? It's obvious. If we were God, we would choose Joseph. That's why God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, very important when this choice of this comparison comes into play in Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verse 67. Moreover, it says, moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph. Chose not tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. Now, when we read that, when we read something like that, and we're in Genesis here, we're going to take the hand of God and say, no, God, not Judah. You mean Joseph, right? You must have heard wrong. You know, we want to say that to God. (laughs) You don't mean Judah. We feel like Jonah did when God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to, to, to preach so they can be safe from their sins. And we feel like Jonah said to God, no, God, not Nineveh. You don't want to save Nineveh. They're too wicked. They're too sinful. I won't be a part of that. And when then God did save Nineveh, Jonah was angry because Jonah could not handle that God wanted to send the message of salvation to the Ninevites. Same thing happened with Ananias with regard to Saul, Paul, Saul, Acts 9.11. The Lord said unto Ananias, unto him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he prayeth. And seeing in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints in Jerusalem. He hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go thy way. He's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. That means the apostle of Gentiles. And kings and children of Israel, I'll show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Okay? And so Ananias has a problem with that. And he has a problem with God wanting to use Saul like that. And he might have said the same thing. Lord, how about Stephen over here? He's so upright. He's not wicked. He's a good man. He's honest. He's loyal. He'd be, don't you think he'd be a better apostle to the Gentiles? Come on, Lord. 
But God chose Saul. All this leads us to understand why God refused Joseph and chose Judah over Joseph. Why? Because of Romans 5.20. Romans 5.20. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's what God loves to do. Grace magnifies and glorifies the Lord. And when God, in his amazing grace, saves and purifies Judah, that brings great glory to God. Now we understand why God chose Judah. The answer does not lie inside of Judah. The answer lies inside of God. God chose Judah because of what it said in Psalm 78, verse 68. But he chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. He loved. Why did God choose the to send the gospel to us, because we were so great? No, because he loved us. So, so for that reason, I'm glad God chose Judah, not because of anything good in Judah, but simply based on God's great love, his grace. All right, now we come back to Judah, and we see that in his state of darkness, he's trying to figure out, you know, why two of his sons die. And Judah, he can't understand that his two sons were wicked and they were judged by God, you know, so he can't understand that. Because if he had understood that, he would have been seeking God. Why? Because of Proverbs 28.5. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. See, if Judah was seeking the Lord, he'd understand. All right, so he's not seeking the Lord. He's in darkness. He's trying his best to understand. And he says to himself, well, let's see now. It can't be that God judged both of them. So what could it be? And a light bulb goes on inside Judy. He says, I got it. I know the problem. And he says it in verse 11, because it seems so out of place unless you see it that way. He says, "Uh, remain a widow at my father's house till Sheila, my son, be grown. For he said, not out loud, he said it in himself, lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. Go away so that my youngest son doesn't die. See, outwardly, Judah tells Tamar, just wait for Sheila. He'll grow up. Then you'll marry him. Be very nice. But the key to understanding what's really happening here is coming with the secret conversation he's having himself, what he's saying to himself in verse 11, lest peradventure he die also. Judah looked for the reason why both of his sons died. He sees that both of them were married to Tamar. It's got to be her. I can't give Tamar to Sheila because he's going to die. My last son's going to die. So he tricks, or he deceives. That's important to see. He deceives Tamar into thinking, you're going to marry Sheila, when in reality, he's just getting rid of her. So she won't be the cause of, of Sheila's death. He, Judah never, ever, ever intended for Tamar to marry Sheila. He's just trying to get rid of her, get her out of the picture. Now, in verse 12, another tragedy happens. In a process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, dies. Judah's comforted, went to his sheep shears in Timnath, and he and his friend Hira the Dolomite. So, boy, does Judah look like the book of Ruth here, right? I mean, Judah, he's like Eli and Melech and, and Naomi, and they leave Israel, and they go to some idolatrous people, Canaanites, Moabites, and Judah's two sons, like Naomi's two sons, they die. Judah's wife, like Naomi's husband, dies. You know, finds himself a widower, Judah does. Grows close to his friend Hira. 
We can imagine how Judah's now spending a lot of time with his friend Hira. It reminds me of, of Mike Johnson. You know, he calls me the other day, and he tells me that he and his wife you know, and family are coming to spend a week with me between Christmas and New Year's. He says, because my wife figures out that you are lonely. <laughs> I told Mike, tell her, I'm not lonely. My friends are irritated, but I'm not lonely. <laughs> I call them all the time on the phone. They're irritated, but I'm not lonely. Irritated friends? Yes. Lonely? No. Anyways, <laughs> we see that Judah's comforted. He goes with his friend Hira. And, okay. Now we come back to Tamar, who Judah has thought he's gotten rid of the father's house. And at verse 13, was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath, sure as sheep. She put her widow's garments off from her, covered her with a veil, wrapped herself, sat in an open place, which is, by the way, to Timnath, for she saw that Shiloh was grown, was not given to him to wife. So Tamar has figured out, hey, I got tricked. Judah deceived me. He never intended to give me Sheila to be my husband. And she understands how Judah just conveniently got rid of her. She is furious at Judah. She's angry, bitter, whatever. She's really mad. So now Tamar says, boy, I know Judah really well. And she knows that this guy has no control over his sexual passions. So she says, hey, one good trick deserves another. (laughs) One good deception deserves another. So she makes a plot. There's a lot of planning here, a lot of plotting. And she dresses like a prostitute. And she sits in an open place to catch him with her face covered. It's interesting that it says that she sits here in an open place. It's interesting that the practice of prostitutes, as described in the Bible, is to sit in the open place, which is a picture of the adulterous woman in Proverbs, you know, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 9, two chapters. If you're a man, you want to read those, memorize them, have them tattooed on your hand. Proverbs 7, verse 10, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot, subtle of heart, same word used for the devil, subtle. She's loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. She's with, now is she without. Now in the streets, she's everywhere and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him and with an impudent voice said unto him, and she goes, she has a speech. And after the speech, it says in verse 21, Proverbs 7, 21, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare. No, it's not. It's for his life. That's Proverbs 7. Proverbs 9, in case we didn't have enough, we get it again. A foolish woman Proverbs 9, 13, is clamorous, she's simple, she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat in the high places of the city, it says, to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, stolen waters are sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not 
that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Whew, boy. All right, what are the three common characteristics that we have between Proverbs 7 and Proverbs 9? These descriptions. First, immoral women are very open. You know, they're the ones that wipe their mouths and say, I haven't done anything wrong. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's just this feeling that they're justified in what they're doing. Proverbs 7, 12. She lieth at weight at every corner. Proverbs 9, 14. On a seat in the high place of the city. And that's what we see Tamar doing in verse 14. She sat in an open place. Second point. Immoral women hate men. They hate men. They actually want to destroy men. They got it out. They want to destroy them. They use their wares to aggressively pursue the men. Proverbs 7.13, she caught him and kissed him. Proverbs 7.21, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield with the flattering of her lips. She forced him, Proverbs 9.15, to call passengers who go right on their ways. That's what we see here. Tamar hates Judah for how he deceived her, how he tricked her, how he condemned this young woman to a life of widowhood. So, verse 14, verse 14, Genesis 39, 14. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. Third point, men are deceived. They think they got the upper hand. They're the ones being destroyed. They're the ones that are being damaged. Proverbs 7.22. He goeth after her straightway if the knocks goeth to the slaughter. As a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver. As a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Proverbs 9.18. He knoweth not that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depth of hell. So this was the case with Judah also. In verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she'd covered her face. See, he didn't know he was deceived. Now, again, here comes Judah. Yeah, this works like clockwork because she knew that Judah's besetting sin is all about sight. When he saw her, verse 15, when he saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she covered her face. When it says he saw her, what did he see? Her face was covered. What did he see? It says she covered her face. But when he saw her, he couldn't see her face. It shows he didn't care. He didn't know. He didn't care what she looked like. Because he has eyes that are described in 2 Peter 2.14. 2 Peter 2.14 says, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. It's like an opiate. It's like an addiction. Can't stop. Eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. He sees a woman, only one thought comes to his mind. Verse 15, when he saw her, he thought her to be a harlot. So Judah propositions her. Verse 16, he turned out to her, by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee, for he knew that she was, knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What wilt thou give me? Thou mayest come in unto me. So when Judah does that, we are told that he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. He didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law, but whoever it was, didn't he knew that she wasn't his wife, <laughs> so he knew that much. He's guilty of that sin, at least. All right, so here's a negotiation. Okay, here's the, here's the art of the deal, okay? You make the negotiation and agreement, verse 16 and 17. Well, will they give me? 
he come in to me. He said, I'll give the kid. I'll send the kid. So Judah is, really negotiates a, a low price, you might say. He offers this kid, a little young goat. But his lust have such a hold on him that he's actually prepared to pay much more than just the young goat. And when she hesitates and says, well, I'll take your signet, your bracelet, and your staff, whoa, no resistance. He's caught. She's in control. And Tamar knew this would be the case because she's doing what it says in Proverbs 6.26. Proverbs 6.26. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. And the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. She hates Judah. Tamar hates Judah. She has hunted for Judah. She has reduced Judah to a piece of bread who's willing to give anything to satisfy his sexual lust. In Proverbs 29.3, He that keepeth company with harlots spendeth all his substance. Luke 15.30, As soon as the son was come, and hath devoured thy living with harlots... Now, the agreement's been made, and there it is. We have it right here before us. And with this agreement, you know what we do? We step back and we go, what? A kid? Is that all? Just a kid? Is that all her purity is worth? Just a young goat? Is that all her honor and her dignity is worth? Just a goat? Is she really willing to give up her peace with God for this young goat? Is she really willing to give up God's favor for just a kid? Is she really willing to become a servant of his sexual sins for just a young goat? Is she really willing to give up her hope for heaven for just one lousy goat? It's amazing. It's amazing. They do the same thing. You walk into a bar today, you see some woman sitting there alone. Is she really willing to give up her peace with God for a drink? Is that all it's worth? People say, oh, it's just sex. It's nothing. No, what the Bible calls in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, he that's joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? No, you're not. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. So what we're looking at in verses 16 and 17, is really an exchange. It's an exchange. Shall, what shall a man or a woman give in exchange for their soul? A young goat? Mark 8, 36, 8, 36. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world, lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall a man give if he gain that sexual pleasure? And lose his own soul in the process. What's the exchange? It shows the terribleness of this all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, Lord, that you chose Judah when we see him in all of his terrible situation, but you said, no, you're going to come through him. Lord, thank you for bringing him through all of this to the repentance, Lord, to the salvation. Thank you you did the same with us. Lord, help us to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.